Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Adventure Science Podcast. I'm your host, Simon Donato, and today we've got the great pleasure of speaking with a really inspirational Canadian woman. Uh, her name is Natalie Panic. She is a Calgary native, went to school in Calgary, but now lives in Toronto, works for a company called MDA and is responsible for building Mars Rover. She is a rocket scientist for all intents and purposes, and she's got a great goal of being an astronaut in years to come, but has got a, a past full of exploration and adventure, and I can't wait to dive into it with her. But first, before we welcome her to the show, the Adventure Science Podcast wouldn't be possible without the support of our generous sponsors, Merrill, Farm to Feet. Sunto, Stoked Oats, Smith Optics, and Canada Satellite. Well, now that we've got the formalities out of the way, Natalie, welcome to the podcast. Great to have you here. Hey there. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's my pleasure. So, how's the weather in Toronto today? You guys have had an up and down year. Oh yeah, it's kind of one of those gloomy, rainy days, but I think it's plus 15 degrees Celsius, which is kind of crazy for February. Shorts weather for your run home? <laughs> yeah, for sure. Nice. So, did you grow up in Calgary or just go to school at uh, UFC? I grew up in Calgary, born and raised in the Rockies, and then wasn't ready to leave when it was time to go to university. So, enrolled in engineering at the University of Calgary. Awesome. So, being from Calgary, you're obviously very familiar with Chinooks, and uh, you're almost getting a, a Chinook in Toronto right now. Yeah. <laughs> You don't get the nice cloud formations here, though. It's just gray. Yeah, that's true. You don't see the, the wall of cloud coming through, which is absolutely beautiful. But I always have to start at the beginning with everybody who's on the show because I get to interview so many interesting people. And how did it start for you? How did you know you wanted to be involved in science and lead a life of adventure? It scares a lot of people off, frankly. I don't know if I knew that I wanted a life in science and a life of adventure, but I had this goal of wanting to be an astronaut and travel to space that I think was born by watching a lot of sci-fi on TV or in movies, whether that was Star Wars or Star Trek or Stargate. And I wanted to be part of this amazing and dynamic team that was exploring to the farthest reaches of the galaxy. And I think that goal has really fostered all of the cool science and engineering related projects that I've done with some adventure along the way. So let's talk about uh, some of the early adventures then, because, you know, there's, there's something that clicks when, when we're young and we may not realize it at the time, but I, I do believe that it sets us on our life course and some of us recognize it. Some of us unfortunately don't. Do you have any memorable experiences, adventures, uh, little expeditions you did with the family, perhaps growing up that, really are, are vivid memories for you? I have so many really awesome memories from when I was a kid because my family camped literally every weekend from May to September out in Kananaskis. Okay. So every Friday we were on the road going out towards the Crow's Nest Pass and then spending a couple days out in the bush, whether we were hiking or fly fishing or just sitting by the campfire, getting ready to look up at the stars. I think that was a really formidable part of my life and really set me on this path of loving being outside and being in nature. Interesting. So as you grew up and a little bit more independent, did you start doing this on your own or have you typically 
done most of these projects or, or these these trips with friends, family, um, other like-minded people. It definitely started out with my family. We we camped in a trailer on Crown Land, so never in a campground out in the bush. But I didn't ever really do a lot of backpacking or long distance trips at that point. And then as I got into high school and university and started meeting more like-minded people and seeing what others were doing out there, I really got intrigued by the idea of carrying everything you need on your back and going out on long distance backpacking trips. And that's been a lot of the way I've explored in the past few years. Interesting. Uh, you want to chat about some of those those trips? Any major highlights? Some exotic locations? Uh, definitely going up to Baffin Island and doing the Ekshayak Pass. That was really cool. I've done a lot of hiking in North America, especially out in the Rockies, um, down in Patagonia, on the east coast of Greenland. Definitely try to mix up trips internationally and in North America, because I think there's so much to see right in our own backyard. And I am really trying to get out further north and explore more that northern Canada has to offer. Interesting. What are some of the challenges that you've noticed going from perhaps hiking in the Canadian Rockies to doing a big project up in Baffin? Uh, definitely there's a lot more planning involved, a lot more resources needed. It's a lot harder to get to. There are huge costs involved. Unfortunately, it's not that easy or cheap to travel around to the far reaches of Northern Canada and then limited access to people and civilization once you're there. So you really have to be self-sufficient and able to support yourself. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, do you know a fellow named, uh, Ray Zahab? Yes. Yeah. I know of him. <laughs> okay. Well, he's he's Mr. Baffin, as far as I know, and he's done uh, Akshayak Pass several times, at least, uh, with with his organization, uh, as well as just independently. I know he loves it up there. I've seen spectacular uh, imagery. So how long did that trip take you, and um, why, why did you choose that spot in Canada as opposed to uh, any of the other classics? Uh, that one, I think, took us about seven days and that trip idea came from reading explore magazine so i am an avid reader of that canadian publication and happened to get a parks issue maybe eight years ago and i saw a picture of mount thor in it and i thought yeah. i need to go there <laughs> yeah it uh, it draws a lot of uh, a lot of hikers and a lot of climbers to mount thor and now base jumpers yeah so. absolutely yeah, spectacular area, one that uh, we've yet to go to. So what's next on the um, the travel and adventure uh, plan for you? I've got a couple ideas spinning. One of them is a backpacking trip in Alaska. So um, backpacking in Wrangell St. Elias National Park and getting flown into the Wrangell Plateau and then basically route finding our way out. And then I've been trying to figure out how to get up to Ellesmere Island to do a hike between Lake Hazen and Tanqueray Fjord. But that one is proving quite costly. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. It, it's incredibly expensive to, uh, to do projects in the Canadian Arctic. And that, that's one of the great frustrations, I think, for adventurous Canadians who want to explore their own backyard. And 
you know, we've got national parks up there. We've got millions and millions of acres of crown land that most of us will never see, not because of desire or lack of will, but because it's prohibitively expensive. And, you know, it's it's interesting. And, and the reason I know this is because we've been working on a project there for a number of years. Uh, one of my friends, Susan Eaton, who's leading the Sedna expedition to snorkel in the Northwest Passage, you know, they face yep. it every year. Um, it's just, it's incredibly expensive to work up there. And it's frustrating, really, because I can fly to Europe or Asia cheaper than I can fly to a location in my own country. Yeah, absolutely. It's one of the biggest barriers, just getting there. Yeah. So what challenges have you uh, have you faced with Ellesmere in particular? I'm just thinking, you know, if, you, if we talk about them now, maybe somebody will, will contact us and say, hey, I know a guy who might be able to help. Yeah, I think that one is is purely the cost and the charter flight getting in there. I know Parks Canada is trying really hard to make those parks more accessible and mm-hmm. I believe annually they're running a charter flight in every 1st of July, but it still costs a huge amount of money and that is solely a flight into Tanqueray Fjord where you would base camp and then do stuff from there whereas we want to do a one-way trip and get picked up from where our trip would end and so that just adds more to the cost so any deviation from that base trip idea that Parks Canada offers just augments the cost and as you said it's prohibitively prohibitively expensive yeah, uh, no kidding. We're looking to go to King William Island, uh, Joe Haven. It's, uh, you know, home of the Franklin story. And it's not a big island. It's just basically the, the first island north of, uh, the mainland once you leave Hudson Bay. But, you know, still incredibly expensive to get to. And once you're on the island, even to get across it is a challenge. So, you know, it's, it's interesting. I think that's part of the allure of, of going to these areas and, you know, on the other side of it, though, because they're so challenging to access, people haven't accessed them. So the potential for scientific discoveries, archaeologic discoveries are still very high in um, in these areas. And, you know, that that's, I think, what combines us all or, or brings us all together as like-minded people. You're a member of the Explorers Club as well. You know, we seem to be a group of people who are happier once the lights of the city are a distant memory in our rearview mirror, um, as opposed to, you know, going out on a Friday night and grabbing a beer with friends. We want to be in the forest and away from it all. And I find that interesting. So you're in Toronto now. Have you found mm-hmm. a group of people that uh, share the same interests? Uh, you know, you're planning expeditions in these projects. Has it been a challenge for you to find people? How are you doing that? It definitely is a challenge to find people. So even if you find the people who have an interest in doing it, who want to go to such a remote location, again, the cost comes into play because not everyone can afford it or can put in the time to try and find funding or is willing to do that. It's it's definitely a challenge. Right, right. Well, before I forget, uh, if you're not familiar with him, you should reach out to Andrew Skirka. He's, um, he's a speed hiker who basically traversed uh, Alaska a few years back. It was, I think he became National Geographic Explorer of the Year for the project, but it was pretty epic. It was, it was self-supported, and um, I'm sure he'd have some, some great information for you um, just in terms of some beta for the route once you're getting ready to go there. So cool. let's, let's talk a little bit about science. Um, you, you went through school. 
uh, in engineering. And what uh, what drew you to engineering? To be honest, I don't think I even knew what engineering was when I was a kid or I was in high school. But I ended up really enjoying my physics classes and had an amazing teacher who I think showed me the rewards of a life built around engineering and science. And then I had spent a lot of time Googling the careers of astronauts and what astronauts were, and most of them were engineers. So I thought that's probably a good foundation if I want to achieve this goal of ever traveling to space. Excellent. So when you were at the University of Calgary, were there any opportunities to focus your education in a way that would perhaps be more valuable to the Canadian Space Agency when they were looking for the next class of uh, astronauts? Yeah, that's a really great question because my degree itself was in mechanical engineering and not really focused on aerospace. And so I was constantly looking for opportunities where I could get some sort of aerospace experience or leverage my skills in a way that would make me stand out. And so I got involved in projects like the solar powered car on the aerodynamics team basically designing the aero shell of the car and what it looked like, and then was able to find uh, an internship down at NASA, which was an interesting experience getting there. Oh, how so? Uh, so that one, and for some reason, everybody loves this story, but I ended up applying for that scholarship four times. I was rejected all four times that I applied and was so frustrated and heartbroken that I couldn't materialize this opportunity that I ended up just calling the director of the Office of Higher Education at NASA to get feedback on my application, and then ended up getting the internship position offered to me over the phone. On that call? On that call. Wow, you must be quite persuasive. Well, <laughs> you know, that's amazing. And I mean, I, I like the story not because it relates to NASA in particular, but just because in everything we do in life, it's always the easier path just to give up and walk away. But if you really, really want something, you know, you just don't accept failure or you keep trying until, you know, you can't try anymore. So I think your story is great because one, NASA for most of us is just this big black box that where you know everybody inside is uh reportedly a genius and you know there's there's probably challenges once you got there too right i mean i i did a phd in geology and then from there i got hired to work in an oil company and imperial oil only hires masters and, and phd students so you're surrounded by really intelligent people the whole time and you know you have all these moments of uh do i measure up how did i get here uh, you know do i deserve to be here uh it's it's interesting did you feel the same way when you were at nasa i think i was just so grateful to be there that i was trying to make the most of every minute of my experience and i think that perseverance and resilience in trying to get there has been such a fundamental building block of almost everything that i have done in my career and I also think that if you succeed on the first try, you're one of the lucky few. Most people have to keep overcoming obstacles and barriers and challenges, and I think it makes you stronger for it. Yeah, couldn't agree more. I mean, that that's life, and especially once you take it in the field. I mean, if, if you've been involved in um, any Explorers Club expeditions or just general scientific field work, I mean, nothing ever goes smoothly. You've got to, you're in the field for a period of time and 
does all the equipment arrive on time? Is it broken? Uh, some of it, you know, you're always um, course correcting as you go and, and adapting. And I think that's one of the most valuable traits that we can pull out of uh, challenging situations that we put ourselves in. It's just the ability to be adaptive. So let's talk about the work that you do as much as you can. I'm sure a lot of it's proprietary, but you said you're working on a Mars rover right now. How challenging has that been? What kind of things are you doing? And, and what are the big hurdles for you guys to overcome? So this Mars rover that we're building is for the European Space Agency. The European Space Agency is trying to launch their first ever rover to Mars in 2020. And we are building the chassis and locomotion system for that rover. So that's basically the frame of the rover, its wheels, its legs, and all the actuators that it uses to drive and steer and deploy itself once it gets to Mars. And it is absolutely a challenging problem. We run into roadblocks and hardware failing on a regular basis. And that's when, like you said, you have to be adaptive and improvise on the fly and work with a really creative team to come up with different solutions and ways forward in order to make the project work. And that's really cool. Yeah, that's interesting. So how? give us some... Uh like a mental picture of what this thing is going to look like in terms of size. Are there wheels? You had mentioned legs. Um, I really don't know what a rover looks like. I haven't <laughs> driven on one. So I guess you could picture something like the size of a small golf court. It's got a golf, golf cart, excuse me. It's got six wheels and those wheels are mounted onto what we call bogies. So a bogey is basically a beam with a pivot in the middle that can rock back and forth. So each bogey has two wheels on it. So three bogies, two wheels on each bogey for a total of six wheels. And then you have actuators, which are basically motors with other sensors in a housing that are in the center of each wheel to basically spin those wheels forwards and backwards. And then another set of six actuators that steer the um, legs of the rover. And then another six actuators that deploy it when it gets to Mars. So launch space is a commodity and you don't get a lot of it. So the rover has to launch in a configuration where it's kind of folded in on itself to help save space. And then once it gets to Mars, it has to deploy itself into its configuration where it can actually drive on Mars. Very cool. So how yeah. once once it's on Mars, what's the lifespan of uh, your little rover? So this rover is going to drive about four kilometers doing science. It has a drill on board and it has to survive driving over the soil, exposure to dust storms, exposure to radiation, um, survival in temperature extremes. And so we build models of the hardware that doesn't actually fly to Mars that we do extensive testing on in order to reduce the risk of it breaking down when it gets there. So it's kind of like doing a dress rehearsal before opening night of a play. You want to make sure you've got all the kinks out, sorted out all the bugs, and your hardware is actually going to work before you spend millions of dollars launching it into space to another planet. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. Well, that's pretty cool. So four kilometers, and the goal is it's going to have a drill, so there's going to be a lot of geologic sampling, and the information will then be sent back... Um, just the signals will be sent back. All laboratory analysis will be done on the rover as well. 
there are some instruments on board to do analysis, and then a lot of the data will go back to scientists um, working at the European Space Agency. And so this mission called ExoMars actually has two parts. There's the 2020 mission, which includes the rover. And then there was a 2016 mission that already launched, which sent an orbiter to Mars to study trace gases okay. while it's orbiting Mars. And then that trace gas orbiter will be the communications relay for, for the rover once it gets there, back to Earth. Amazing. Jeez, all the pieces that need to uh, to be in place and operational for uh, something like this to be successful it's uh, it's fascinating and incredible that you know we've we've managed to figure it out yeah it's <laughs> it's actually it, it's interesting working on all the technical challenges of a rover program but also the human factor so working with different teams and companies from around the world who are working on different subsystems on the rover and that all of that needs to come together in the end into this one system that works as planned. So, yeah, it's pretty pretty complicated and, and interesting to consider that aspect of it. Okay, so your, your team is actively communicating uh, with the other companies who are building the different pieces for this rover so that it will all fit together in the end like puzzle pieces. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, well... I mean, that level of collaboration is, isn't really that common in industry. So, I don't know, I think it's pretty exciting that uh, you have that opportunity and you get to learn from the best in the business in uh, multiple facets, not just uh, from your own company. So, that's pretty awesome. Let's talk about uh, becoming a Canadian astronaut. So, <laughs> I don't know much about the process. I've, I've never um, really looked at it to apply, but, I mean, I think it's uh, quite amazing. So... What does somebody need to do today to uh, become an astronaut? You've been planning and working on this for a long time now. Yeah, so this is actually an interesting conversation for me because Canada just had their latest astronaut recruitment last year. So Canada's astronaut recruitments are a little few and far between approximately every decade just because our space every program... decade, wow. Yeah, so I think they happened in 1983, 1992. There was one in 2008 to 2009 where two new astronauts were chosen and they were the only two active astronauts from 2009 until last year. They have also never flown in space yet. Really? And then the Canadian Space Agency launched another recruitment to hire two more astronauts last year, which was really exciting for everyone in the industry to have this this program launch and get some new fresh spaces into space and, and the possibility of having more Canadians in space. So that recruitment and the ones before it would have started with an initial application process where you talk about your strengths, your expertise, all of your different qualifications, whether it's education, speaking different languages, mm -hmm. um, being able to play musical instruments, anything that would make you a really while, well- While in space? Well- <laughs> and, and no Bowie tunes? Is that a mandatory now? Uh, maybe. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so you basically fill out all that information and then go through a first screening process to make sure they've um, filtered out anyone who doesn't meet the minimum qualifications. 
And this this application process was really cool this time because they opened it up to um, careers like dentistry and nurses and doctors because if you were to colonize another planet or send a long-term mission to another planet, you would need that type of expertise. Well, that makes sense. So how long does the, um, the process take, uh, their vetting process? It's about a year. Wow. So it launched in June 2016, and then they announced the new astronauts July 2017. July 2017. Wow. And only two spaces. Yeah. Pretty so, much the most competitive uh, job in the world. Uh, absolutely. 4,000 applicants, and they picked two. 4,000 applicants. Wow. And so they, they opened it to all sorts of different disciplines. And so you had mentioned uh, earlier in the conversation that uh, most Canadian astronauts, or sorry, most astronauts or Canadian astronauts were engineers. Uh, I think it's very common for astronauts in general to have a background as either an engineer or a pilot. Okay. Yeah, I was familiar with with the pilot side. I, I wasn't as familiar on the, well, the STEM uh, side of things. So that's interesting. But they're, they're broadening it, which means that I guess uh, the mission to Mars is, at least in the space agency's mind, coming sooner rather than later, right? Yeah, I think that long-term space travel, getting to another planet, is something that's really on the forefront of, of agencies all around the world. So what do you think the, the timing is? I mean, now we've got um, private organizations working on um, getting vessels into space uh, with SpaceX and starting to, you know, take another look at the moon, colonizing other planets. What do you think the timeline is for these things? I don't know if I want to say a specific timeline, but what I will say is I think, like you said, it's really excited, exciting to have these private agencies dipping their toes into, into these endeavors and really pushing level of possibility and what's possible in a short amount of time and with less money. And I think you need those visionaries and those people like the Elon Musks in order to make change and progress happen faster in the space world. Interesting. So you, you think that um, they are giving the overall space program, global space program, a little bit of a, a nudge uh, and accelerating it or, or perhaps challenging um, some of the, the existing notions about space travel? Yeah, I think accelerating and challenging are great descriptors. They're, they're challenging what people have said is impossible and going out there and doing it. And at the same time, it requires collaboration with these agencies like NASA and the Canadian Space Agency who have been around for a long time and who have a lot of experience and lessons learned in these endeavors. And I think it's that collaboration that's really going to propel human travel to another planet. Yeah, well, I mean, you see it in so many industries. There's uh, stalwarts and then you have the, the small innovators and a few of them just make these breakthroughs that um, are game changers. Uh, I'd mentioned earlier that I came from the oil and gas background after graduating. And at that time, tight plays. So pulling oil or gas out of shale was innovative. And um, not a lot of people knew how to do it. But now it's revolutionized um, 
oil exploration across North America, for good or bad. I mean, that's a separate debate, but it's just it's an industry that I know, and it really changed the game as classical reservoirs started to dry up, um, being able to, to fracture and extract uh, hydrocarbons from previously uh, inaccessible plays um, has put America at least on the path to being energy self-sufficient um, through uh, fossil fuels that way. So, you know, it's it's just, that's what I know. You, you see it in all industries, though, and it's pretty fascinating. So I'll be interested to see where these private companies um, end up going and how kind of the national space agencies in Europe, Canada, uh, NASA, how they respond to it as well. Well, let's uh, let's uh, put our feet on uh, back on planet Earth for a moment here, and you know I, you're a huge champion of the uh, STEM movement and science, technology, engineering, math for those who don't know, and in particular, um, uh, basically inspiring females to get involved in these academic disciplines. It's it's been an issue for years and. You know, now your um, your face is is all over the internet, uh, trying to encourage and inspire women to enter. So, how how has that come about for you? Is this something that you sought out on your own, or were you anointed? I mean, I'm I'm really interested to know more about this and and how the movement's going because it's so important. So uh, I thought about this a lot actually, and I think what happened is that I ended up on a project at work where I wasn't necessarily fulfilled, wasn't feeling like I was challenged and getting out of it what I was putting in. And then at the same time was examining where I was at in this path of becoming an astronaut and realized that I've had a lot of really cool experiences, whether it was the solar powered car or learning how to fly or building space robots that I could be sharing with other people. And I also recognize that I wish I could have just emailed Roberta Bondar or Chris Hadfield when I was a kid and asked them how they got where they were, asked them what I needed to do to make it easier to go down this path. Not saying it was easy, just easier to find my way. And so that kind of motivated me to interact more on social media and start a blog and really start putting myself out there on on Twitter and Instagram and making myself available to connect with young people. So that's how it all started for me. And how has it been going? It's been really cool. I think in the day and age we live in where you can share information instantaneously, we're really starting a movement and creating momentum for STEM and showing people the rewards of science, technology, and engineering in our communities, and also science literacy. What I will say is that I think young people already love that stuff. They're already curious and intrigued by the world and see everything with wonder and awe. And I think as we get older, sometimes cynicism can come into play, or particularly for women or minorities, you start having to navigate environments or spaces that aren't friendly or can be more hostile. And that's where you start to see the loss of interest and the demotivation start to happen. Now, have you seen anything like that yourself on your path? 
in terms of other people I've interacted with or me specifically? Um, I'm thinking more just as a, as a general group. Um, you know, you went into engineering, which I mean, typically there aren't many females in engineering. Is that changing now? I don't know. But uh, you went from engineering. Now you're working for a, um, a space age materials uh, company. And, you know, is it a 50-50 split or is it skewed strongly towards male employees who most of them are, are engineers? I don't know these things. So have you seen that the stereotypes are true? Are they starting to change? And then there'll be a second part to this question after you answer it. So get ready. Okay. So I think, unfortunately, the stereotypes are true. A lot of my education and my work has been in male-dominated fields and on mostly male-dominated teams. I think the momentum that is growing around STEM is encouraging and supporting more girls and women to go into engineering and those tech fields in university. And you'll start hearing stats like universities have record undergraduate enrollment in engineering at like 30 or 35 percent. And they're trying to hit 50-50 by, I don't know, like 2020 or 2025 or something like that. And that is fantastic. That is super awesome. But I think that's a bit of a narrow-minded view of trying to change the ratio in STEM because it doesn't consider whether those women graduate their degrees. It doesn't consider whether they enter industry and engineering after they graduate. It doesn't consider whether they stay in industry beyond two or five years or after having kids. And it doesn't consider women moving into leadership management, director level and board level positions. So I think there is a lot of work to be done. There is a common term that has replaced breaking the glass ceiling and having to navigate a glass obstacle course. And that goes back to the unfriendly and often hostile spaces that are created in the STEM field that deter women and minorities from entering and continuing to pursue careers in STEM. (laughs) That was a mouthful. Yeah, I couldn't repeat that, but that was a that was a great answer. Um, I'm gonna have to put my second part of this question on pause now because I didn't realize it was such an obstacle course. Uh, Chanel, my my wife, she usually hosts this podcast with me. Well, we've got our first one due in two weeks, and in the United States, um, getting three months off after a baby is kind of standard. Usually, it's it's six weeks to three months. So, you know, we've had the discussion. Well. What do we do? Should we focus, well, me focus more of my energy on, on my businesses while she spends more than three months raising uh, kids or should we work three months? And it's just, uh, these are the questions that families have now. And, you know, it really feels unfair as a male because, well, all right, I guess I'll just continue doing what I normally do. Well, everything in your life's going to change because the workplace isn't designed to accommodate um, females who want to be leaders in industry or, or go on. And I think, you know, that aside, it's fascinating that you've taken it just beyond, all right, STEM, let's get more girls uh, taking science and math classes in high school. And then, hey, we're doing, we're doing better now in university because a few of them have enrolled um, in these science and math heavy uh, disciplines. 
uh, and you've taken it to, all right, well, how many are graduating? How many are then entering industry in their field of study? How many are moving up to the management chain or, you know, building long and, and fruitful careers? So, you know, obviously only time will tell, but I think, you know, there's this going to be quite a step change um, in society that it really seems to uh, to have already begun. Uh, especially with the, the Me Too movement that, you know, it's not related to STEM, but it's all about equality. And there's a greater push for equality between women, minorities, um, you know, the, the voice is getting louder and um, it's great to see. So what uh, this finally brings me to my second part of the question, though. What are you hearing from the uh, the girls and women that you've inspired who are reaching out to you via social media or other platforms that you have available? I think that's the most rewarding part about doing this is when you get the young women emailing and asking for advice on what to study in university or what type of scholarships are out there and being able to have a one-on-one connection with someone where they can hear my experiences about how I failed. And one of the most common comments I get is that, oh, you're a rocket scientist. You've accomplished so many things. You must know exactly what your path is and and what to do next. And I think for most adults, we're all just finding our own way. We don't have it figured out. We have moments of vulnerability and fear and where we don't know all the answers. And I think it's really important for young people to hear that, to know that they don't have to have it all figured out right away and that it's okay to change your mind, to think that you want something and then have more experiences or learn something new and realize that you want something totally different. That is perfectly okay. And then As a follow-on to that, I love when I get emails from dads saying that they watched a talk of mine or that they have brought their daughter to see a talk that I've given, and it's really allowed them to connect more with their daughters and help encourage them to be curious about the world around them and to not be afraid to go outside of their comfort zones. Well, I think that's a a wonderful answer, and it's it's a great way to think about things because, you know, you just... You just can't quit on it, and, and failures are just teachable moments, right? So, you know, sharing that message uh, is, is pretty important. So let, let's go back to uh, the expedition side of things and getting dirty, getting physical. When I was in grad school, I would lead, um, you know, summer field camps for the undergrad students in, in the geoscience department. And I remember the very first one I was going to do the uh, instructors, so, you know, I was a grad student, and there was a bunch of uh, profs who were the uh, leaders here. They said to all of the grad students who had been hired as field assistants, they said, all right, guys, you're going to have to really monitor your teams because the girls aren't going to drink. They don't want to have to go to the bathroom out in the forest. So they're not going to drink, and they're going to get dehydrated through the day. Guys, don't. there's not kind of the same stigma about guys going to the bathroom in the bush. So... You know, ever since then, I just, I, I noticed that, um, you know, young women just have this um, sense of nervousness being in the field. And with Adventure Science, my favorite expeditions are always the ones that are female heavy because it really just, it breaks that stigma. And, you know, if, if everybody else in the world could see what I see um, these women accomplish when they're out in the field, um, male or female, really, there's no difference. It's just people doing what needs to be done 
and pushing themselves day in, day out. It, it's very, very impressive. So to go back to, you know, your upbringing with so much camping and now, you know, you're choosing to lead these trekking expeditions in very remote places where you have to be self-sufficient. Um, there's definite objective risk out there and you've got to be prepared, but it's not necessarily the girly thing to do, just like STEM hasn't been the female thing to do. So, you know, do you think there's a tie there or did, did one lead to the other? I, I don't know. I'm just, I mean, they seem so similar to me. Yeah, I, I've thought about that a lot, actually, how my career in STEM and, and love of adventure have paralleled each other a lot. I don't know. I think like I always just try and remind myself that I'm out there to learn something that if I haven't learned something, I haven't pushed myself hard enough. And I try and block out what other people's expectations are or what other people might think and always remind myself that I'm there for me and to learn something. And I think that helps me break down any barriers or fears that I have or or trying to get away from vulnerabilities when you're well outside of your comfort zone. Well, it's an interesting way to uh to look at it. Um I I don't know if that's if that's what people normally do. You know, they they think of an objective and I must get it at all costs as opposed to you know, the the journey is the mission, not the destination. And, uh, you know, I certainly find more value when the goal is to, is to learn as you go. Um, you know, being, a, being somebody else from Calgary and spending lots of time in the Canadian Rockies, I never, never felt the need to bag every peak. If the weather came in, well, you just give up for the day. You can always do it again another day. So it was never that um, all or nothing push to accomplish something and drive yourself into the ground and in doing so take the fun out of it so yeah. you know that's i think that's a really healthy outlook uh so i have a question for you about your expeditions who do you typically adventure with do you have uh, a little group uh, of adventure partners or a few people in particular most of the time it's actually just my partner cam and i okay yeah so he's a big time adventurer as well likes to to get lost in uh, big places Definitely likes to get lost in big places, but I'm more of the planner, whereas he likes to just roll with it as it goes. So it's an interesting mix of personalities. Well, I think uh, it's a complementary mix of personalities where without a plan, um, you can't get anything done. But best laid plans, you know, still have to have room for adjustment. And uh, maybe that's what he brings to the mess. Well, uh, I will wrap this up with one final question i ask this of everybody um i mean it's really been an interesting conversation so far and uh you've you've made my brain jump around a little bit here i like it what what is a mantra that you'd say you live by uh the one that i say all the time is dream big but i'm gonna change it up tonight because yesterday i just watched the tooth fairy with the rock and that movie (laughs) <laughs> centered around the yes, funny I know that movie centered around the principle of what if, always believing in possibility and just asking yourself what if, believing that anything is possible. Well, it certainly seems to fit with your personality, 
and uh, I think your successes have proven it thus far. So that's a great mantra, and thanks so much for taking the time to chat tonight. I really appreciate being able to uh, just ask you some of these questions and, and learn a little bit more about you and, and your path to uh, where you are now, and I hope the Canadian Space Agency opens a few more spots up soon. I'm sure your, uh, your name's going to be listed amongst those selected at some point. That would be pretty rad. Thanks for having me. Oh, my pleasure. All the best. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this week's edition of the Adventure Science Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about Adventure Science, you can visit us online at www.adventurescience.com. You can find us in the social media realm at adventure underscore sci for Instagram and Twitter, or you can find us on Facebook at Adventure Science. Technical assistance for the Adventure Science podcast is provided by Olivier Hubert Benoit, and Adventure Science wishes to thank its sponsors for making this possible. Merrill, Farm to Feet, Stoked Oats, Suto, Canada Satellite, and Earthcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time.